0: I hope you have your Bibles with you tonight. If you don't, there might be one in the pew nearby. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, Chapter 11. The Gospel of John, Chapter 11. will be looking at this passage which was read earlier for us. Father, as we do turn to your word tonight, as always, we come in dependence upon you. We would ask, Father, that your spirit would enable us and empower us to rightly understand. And that here, Father, as always, we desire to see Jesus Help us to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Charlene, could you turn it down just a tad, please? We're here to talk about the cross. We're here to remember the cross. We're here to praise God for the cross tonight. The cross is, of course, the pivotal moment in the Bible's overarching story. Everything that came before the cross pointed to it. Everything that has uh, come after the cross, looks back to the cross. And this passage that we'll be looking at tonight is in, the, uh, is, is, is in the context of this pivotal point in John's gospel. From this point forward, John is focused on the cross. The cross stands on the horizon of everything that John writes about from this point on beginning with the death of Lazarus and his resurrection of course here in John chapter 11 Jesus focus is the or John's focus I should say is the impending sacrifice of Jesus on the cross the cross is what looms over everything John writes from this point on And as we approach this passage, we find that the focus of John at this point has to do with the purpose of the cross. He's answering the question, what was the purpose of the cross? And John offers two perspectives as he answers this for us. One is the perspective of the religious leaders. And the second is the perspective of God himself. When we look at the cross from the perspective of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we find that Jesus died because it was politically expedient for him to die. Verse 45 says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all the men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So after the resurrection of Lazarus, which is what we find earlier in this chapter, several people, we find, come to know Jesus. They come to believe in him, having seen this great Miracle and having heard what Jesus has said about the fact that he himself is the resurrection and the life. But some of those who were there that day went and snitched to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees called the other religious leaders, the Sadducees, together for a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was the highest judicial body in Israel. They had both political and spiritual power, and they served under Roman authority. Everything that happened in Israel in the first century was under Roman authority. And for them, The power and the popularity of Jesus was a huge issue. It was a significant problem. Now here's the irony. When they heard about the raising of Lazarus, they believed it. But believing that Jesus had raised a man from the dead, they did not desire to bow down and worship him. They began trying to figure out how to stop him. It's a very strange thing. They say there in verse 47, this man is performing many signs. They didn't doubt that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They acknowledge that he had this supernatural power. Even their word choice is remarkable. They use the word sign, which is another way of saying that he was performing a miracle. But the miracles are more than simply supernatural displays. They are, as the word says, signs. What does a sign do? Well, it points to something. These works of Jesus, like the raising of Lazarus, are so phenomenal that it was understood they were intended to point to something else, something more significant. And yet, it never occurs to the Sanhedrin to think about what the signs may be pointing to. They refuse to ask the question. They see all these signs, but they fail to consider what those signs are advertising. They refuse to consider the obvious explanation, Jesus is the Messiah. Their unbelief is even more startling when you consider the occupation of these men. They each had years, if not decades, of religious service behind them. They were supposed to be the most spiritual men in the nation. If we could have been present at this meeting of the Sanhedrin... We would have listened as they opened the meeting in prayer, most likely asking God to lead them. We would have been impressed by the priestly robes of the Sadducees and the phylacteries of the Pharisees as they wore the Scripture upon their body all of this religion and all of this biblical knowledge, and yet they were unable to see the glory of the Son of God right before them. It's a reminder, of course, that one can be religious and lost. One can memorize scripture and be ignorant of its truth. One can say all the right things and still have a heart that has not been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. What is the explanation for this kind of blindness Well, the spiritual explanation, of course, is that these people were spiritually dead. They had hearts of stone. They were unable to understand, to comprehend, to discern spiritual things. The earthly explanation is that their primary concern was maintaining their power and control. Jesus threatened their position and influence. If people continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, then Rome would sweep in and take away their authority. The power that they possessed could be maintained only as long as Rome deemed them useful. If Rome found the Sanhedrin no longer useful, all of these men would lose their position and their lives John makes that very explicit there in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And when you read that phrase, our nation, read it in the same way you read our place. These men were not speaking of the nation as something they belonged to, they were speaking of the nation as something that belonged to them. Their concern wasn't for the people, it was for themselves. Those Jewish leaders provide for us a clear and striking picture of the self-centeredness of empty, dead religion, practiced by so many who come to church and give money and say and do the right things, exhibit external virtue and morality, but have no relationship with Jesus Christ. If someone has been truly converted and is following Christ, their focus will first be on Jesus, but empty religion is focused on the self. It's about me. My effort... My good works, my blessing, my safety, my position, my power. Similar error is apparent when we begin to evaluate spiritual realities by how we will be affected. The concern of the Sanhedrin wasn't whether Jesus was right, wasn't whether he was good, it was how his actions were going to affect them. And that's a dangerous path that is very easy to travel. When our decisions are not based on clear biblical standards of holiness, but on how they will affect our own comfort and convenience, then we are committing the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their fear of loss of influence and loss of income pushed them to disobey God's will. And in response to this problem, As they saw it, Caiaphas, the high priest, offers a plan. We're going to have to get rid of this guy. It is expedient for the people, for the whole nation. And what he really means is it's expedient for us. Jesus was a problem, problems have to be eliminated. And with cold cunning, the high priest calls for Jesus' death. And his statement reveals another reality of religion. Religion is self-centered and motivated by fear and will always lead to rationalization. Since religion is not rooted in the unchanging grace of God, it will waver based on circumstances. We will make decisions based on our own perception of what benefits us. What we think will perhaps keep God's favor. Ultimately, religion is our attempt to maintain our position with men or even with God. It's rooted in what we believe others think about us and what we believe God thinks about us. So we begin to play this game. We look at an action that's wrong and we begin to justify why it's really not that bad. What we're doing is coming up with a defense of our own actions, our own desires. We are seeking to justify ourselves. And we have, as fallen human beings, great capacity for this. This is what religion does, but it's not what genuine faith does. Genuine saving faith finds justification not in the rationalization of our sin, but in Jesus. Genuine faith understands that our justification doesn't depend upon us. It comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Caiaphas is full of religion. His goal is self-justification. The religious leaders wanted to kill an innocent man because it benefited them. It was politically expedient. But they needed to come up with some rationalization for it. Some way they could defend their sin without it appearing as if that's what they're doing. They had to come up with a rationalization that they could use to convince not only others, but themselves. And even in their twisted religious way, God. If they could justify it, their thinking went, then God couldn't hold it against them. On the scales of good and bad, their good motive outweighed the, the evil of the actual deed, at least in their mind. That's how they were trying to rationalize this. And Caiaphas' speech there in the Sanhedrin must have been quite convincing because everybody immediately agreed. Everybody jumped on the bad wagon and they began to plot to kill Jesus. You see that in verse 53. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now it's gone beyond impulse. That had happened before. They tried to stone him. They had heard him teaching something they didn't like. And in the moment, they thought they, 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 they sought to destroy him. But of course, it wasn't time yet. Now, it's not a matter of impulsiveness. It's not a matter of hot blood. Now it's cold blood. Now we're going to scheme and we're going to plot. Now it's premeditated murder. Jesus, however, avoids them until the appropriate time. Verse 54 says that Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And John's language at this point is very interesting. Note the word therefore in verse 54. Therefore, Jesus knew that they were plotting to kill him, therefore he avoided them. He would not die because of the whims of the religious establishment. Jesus' death was not the tragic death of a religious zealot. He would die at a time chosen by the Father. His life would not be taken from him. He would give it willingly at the right time and for a predetermined purpose. So from the perspective of the religious leaders, Jesus died because it was politically expedient. From the perspective of God, however, Jesus died to accomplish the redemption of God's people. Come back up a little bit to verses 51 and 52. Now we did not say this, speaking of Caiaphas, on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also Gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And we find that Caiaphas is unaware of what he's saying. As we see so often in the scripture, God is using his enemies to communicate truth and to accomplish his own purposes. Scripture uniformly declares that that from the beginning to the end, the death of Christ and every detail about it was according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God, including this speech by Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. God planned Caiaphas' words. To serve his own purpose. They held greater meaning than Caiaphas ever imagined. Caiaphas' intention was evil, but God had ordained the death of Jesus in order to accomplish good. Peter makes this point clearly during his sermon on the day of Pentecost. When he says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. God determined that Jesus would die. God decreed that Jesus would die. His death is not an accidental tragedy. It is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. But that doesn't get Caiaphas off the hook. He was not an unwilling puppet. We shouldn't look at him as a spiritual dummy with God's hand up his back, controlling his mouth. We see in Caiaphas the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God turned the wicked, blasphemous, murderous words of this evil man into inspired prophecy. The death of Jesus Christ may have been politically expedient for the leadership of Israel, But it accomplished more important purposes, divine purposes. His death satisfied the just wrath of God. There's a key word that's easy to overlook, both in Caiaphas' prophecy and in John's interpretation of it, and it's that little word, for. Verse 50. Do you not take, uh, do, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people? Verse 51 Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You understand the significance of this when you understand that when you read that one man must die for the people or for the nation, the word for means in place of or on behalf of. Jesus was dying in the place of someone else. That's the language of substitution. This is the language of temple sacrifice. We're seeing this language in Leviticus. In this gospel, John constantly points us to the Passover festival, when lambs would be brought into Jerusalem and sacrificed in the temple. In chapter 1, John the Baptist introduces Jesus by saying, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Beginning in chapter 12, the rest of the gospel takes place during the Passover festival. To understand this prophecy, we need to understand what took place at Passover. The first Passover is recorded, as you know, back in Exodus chapter 12. God had just brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians, warning Pharaoh to let the people of God go. Pharaoh said, no. So one final plague is coming. The killing of the firstborn. But God made a provision so that his people would not have to suffer the death of their firstborn sons. They needed to take an unblemished lamb, kill it, and put some of the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And when God saw the blood, he would pass over them, their sons would be safe. So to save the life of their son, each family had to take the life of a lamb. There was another significant time on the Jewish calendar, which also focused on a sacrifice. It was called the Day of Atonement. We'll eventually be looking at this in our study of Leviticus. On that day, two goats were brought to the priest. One of them was sacrificed to the Lord, and the other was allowed to escape into the wilderness. It was called a scapegoat. It's a beautiful picture of what was necessary to atone for the sins of man. The goat that was released pictured expiation, the removing or the covering of sin. The goat that was slaughtered pictured propitiation, which is the wrath of God pacified, turned away from the object of wrath. One goat would not have been enough. There needed to be two in order to give the complete picture. God could not just place sin of the people on the back of the scapegoat and send it away. That would be like brushing it under the rug. Whenever sin is committed, there must be a price paid. And that price is paid through the sacrificed goat. Lamb, Savior. When Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for or on behalf of the children of God, he reminds us that someone has to pay the debt. Only a perfect lamb could do that, and only by the shedding of his blood. Jesus is the one who knew no sin and yet became sin for us. The sacrifice was not contrary to love, it was the ultimate expression of it. Through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the just wrath of God has been removed. Forgiveness now can be offered and fellowship restored between the creature and the creator. As John interprets Caiaphas's word, he adds this note of great certainty. The death of Jesus Christ was going to accomplish what God Intended. God is going to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is what Jesus is going to accomplish in his death. And note, the people of God are already known to him. And they're going to be gathered. This certainty is unmistakable. The death of Jesus did not secure the possibility of salvation. It secured salvation. Sometimes Christians speak of the death of Christ simply as that which makes atonement possible. Scripture never speaks of it that way. The death of Christ actually atoned for the sin of those whom God had chosen from before the foundation of the world. Who are the children of God? They are the one whom God has declared to be his children. The ones for whom he would accomplish redemption. In the classic book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray helps us understand this. He says, did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible, to remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation and merely to make provision for salvation? Or did he come to save his people? Did he come to put all men in a savable state? Or did he come to secure the salvation of all those who are ordained to eternal life? Did he come to make men redeemable? Or did he come to effectually and infallibly redeem? And the answer is he came to redeem, he came to save. I came to seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? Well, everybody's lost. Did Jesus come to seek and to save everyone? If you say yes, then you're saying that Jesus has failed. Because not everyone is saved. Jesus has come to save the church. Jesus has come to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad those who don't even know that they are the chosen children of God until the Spirit of God works through the proclamation of the gospel to draw them to Christ. The death of Christ would gather all of his sheep into one fold with one shepherd. None would be lost, none would be forgotten. All would, by the power of the shepherd and through the offering of his life, be brought safely into the flock of God. We sing and we preach and we meditate on the death of Jesus, not to bask in the gory details, but to celebrate a glorious victory. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, thank you. We rejoice and we sing hallelujah. Father, because you are indeed a great Savior. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.